This episode of No Meat Athlete Radio is brought to you by Rebels Super Herb Elixirs, made with real food ingredients to de-stress and re-energize your body and mind. Learn more at rebel.co, that's R-E-B-B-L dot C-O, and keep listening for details on a giveaway later in the show. Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of No Meat Athlete Radio, episode 165, and I'm Matt Frazier, joined by Doug Hay. Even though it's an interview, we are graced by the presence of Doug Hay, the Rock Creek runner, for a few minutes. (laughs) Matt, did you know (laughs) that yesterday I sent an email out to my email list with Rock Creek Runner and made a claim that Doug's Did You Know is the most popular segment of no meat athlete radio <laughs> I, I would say it might be i mean I, we don't have other segments so maybe by default it's the winner there were a few people who wrote back and said that they agreed with me so wow I'm just so is, is that is that your doug's did you know for the episode <laughs> i guess so <laughs> that's, that's a good one well did you know that it's your anniversary happy nine year hey anniversary. there we go there you go i did know that but i bet the most audience members did not yes congratulations but thank, you. thank you doug we've made it nine years so far all right so, uh, for this episode, I interviewed Dr. John McDougall, which was an honor, a pleasure. He, uh, he's one of the, in my mind, I don't know, five to seven kind of vegan docs, right? Like the, the Mount Olympus of vegan doctors uh, who they, you know, I, I kind of always thought of them all as sort of being the same thing, right? Because they're, in, in the grand scheme of theme, things, they are, all have this same, I don't want to say agenda, but all have this, the rough, the same beliefs in the plant-based diet, um, and the power of it to heal and help people lose weight and all those things. But they, they really do have some pretty big differences among them. And even when kind of just doing some research for this interview, I came across a bunch of little disagreements and spats they've had over the years on message boards and things like that. Uh, so there actually is some, is some, you know, conflict, I guess, among them. But this was, this was an eye opening interview for me because I really haven't, for whatever reason, haven't really come across much of McDougal's stuff. Like all the other ones, I've, I see them at conferences and things that I've been at. Uh, but for some reason, haven't met him in person, haven't really just had reason to come across his stuff before. So it was interesting to me. Do you know much, Doug, about, about McDougall? You know, just, no, no, not really. Not okay. really, no. <laughs> he's, what I knew of him basically was that he's the starch guy. Right. That that's his thing. He's all about potatoes, pasta. Uh, I mean, the front of his book says pizza, pancakes. But I mean, for me, it, I think of potatoes, pasta, rice, and beans. Those are like his staple foods. And... What where we kind of went in this interview was I, I asked him like what about all the the micronutrition that is like now all the rage it seems that it's all about getting the leafy greens and the the berries and all these different fruits and vegetables that are packed with different vitamins minerals basically micronutrients um, you know it's, it seems like that's what everybody is talking about these days mm-hmm. and he had some interesting things to say he basically said that was akin to taking supplements that in trying to engineer your diet to get these concentrated forms of micro micro nutrients that it was like a step away from from supplements so i don't know if that's totally a fair summary of of the point he was trying to make but people can listen for themselves of course and and hear what he says but it was just some surprising stuff it was definitely a uh, a contrarian viewpoint you know in terms of of micronutrition that that is all the rage so i found that kind of interesting and i guess to give a little more context for people who don't know i i sort of think of mcdougall after this interview as as kind of like corresponding to a fruitarian diet except instead of fruit it's all about starch 
Hmm. But basically, it's he's very much against um, oils, of course. But but even nuts and seeds, he kind of he kind of talks about in this interview as if as if they're a bad thing. Um, may, maybe not in in small quantities, but it just reminded me of that a little bit. And another kind of box that I have put him in in my head is if if Doctor Furman, who we talk about often, is is all about the micronutrition, right? He's all about the fruits and the vegetables and and some nuts and seeds, but his You've got all that stuff which doesn't pack a lot of calories, the fruits and the vegetables. doesn't pack that much calories. Uh, the calories for Furman seem to come mostly from fat. I shouldn't say mostly, but that's one of his one of his ways of getting the actual energy out of a diet is by having uh, a fat content that is decently high, maybe somewhere between 15 to 20% of your diet coming from fat. For McDougal, the answer where the calories come from in addition to – and he's not at all saying that you shouldn't get micronutrients, right? You still want some fruits and vegetables, but the main calorie source is going to be the starch. So that's sort of where those two guys stand, right? One's more pro-fat. The other's more pro-starch. Uh, hopefully that is an accurate summary, but again, that's kind of just my own thinking on this. Um, so anyway, it was it was an interesting interview. It's a different – just different view of diet than I've than I've really been exposed to, and it, and – I try to really stay open-minded with this stuff. So I'm actually, I really am looking forward to reading all of his book and, and kind of fully understanding where it's coming from. Uh, I should warn that it, I guess, I don't know. I, I was a little bit caught off guard by some of the, the, uh, the lack of political correctness, which, which he exhibits here, which is, you know, I, I'm not, who, who am I to say if you should or shouldn't be politically correct? I don't know even where I stand on that. Uh, I think it's possible to go too far with it. Um, you know, so he he'd start talking about in history different cultures that have eaten these things, and then starts to, to kind of make generalizations about current cultures and what different cultures eat. Uh, but you know, it just he's not really gentle about the way that he that he does that. So yeah, just a little bit of, of forewarning. I wouldn't give make that a reason not to listen. But um, you know, it's it's it it makes I guess for an interview that that uh, is hopefully entertaining for most people. So Matt, you know, I'm I'm pretty easily offended. So should I should I avoid this one? Uh, no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't avoid this one, Doug, but you should, I would just say go in open-minded and say, <laughs> you know what, I'm, I'm just going to listen to this and enjoy it for the content and whatever. I mean, he talks, he, we talk about paleo, he, he talks about that as being a sexist diet because it, it basically is only assuming that the, the male role of hunting is, is the way that we ate and that we're ignoring the, the female role of gathering but you know, even even that's kind of making a generalization, right? That the females gathered and the men the men hunted. I, I mean, who, I don't know. I don't know enough about this stuff to know if that's a hundred percent accurate or not. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Um, anyway, so that's just an example, right? Not afraid to go to that place in this discussion of of diets. All right. Well, I'm, I'm excited to to see what this is all about. Maybe I'll leave a negative. No, I won't do that. <laughs> no, don't do that. I mean, I, I really do. I think it's an interesting approach to diet. And, and one that I genuinely am excited to, to learn more about. Yeah, me too. This is going to be cool. All right. Uh, I think that is it then. Um, yeah, we've got – oh, quick little announcement. The Nomad Athlete cycling gear and triathlon gear, which we do not offer on a year-round ongoing basis. We just do one or two pre-orders per year. Uh, that is out, I think, for the second time only with our new logo on it. If you go to hillkiller.com, that's hillkiller, like a, a cyclist would kill a hill, I guess. Hillkiller.com slash no meat. You will see our whole collection of stuff. And all that collection of pre-order stuff goes away on Monday, October 24th at the end of the day. So Monday, October 24th is the deadline to get in a pre-order for the cycling and triathlon gear with the no meat athlete logo on it. And I believe the goal of all that is so that it can be delivered in time for Christmas. 
Great. Okay. Yes. So with that, let's get to Dr. John McDougall talking about the healthiest diet on the planet. Hey everyone, Matt Frazier here with Dr. John McDougall, one of the giants in plant-based nutrition, author of The Starch Solution and the new book, The Healthiest Diet on the Planet. Dr. McDougall, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Well, it's always fun to share. <laughs> All right, well, I am looking forward to this. Uh, we talk a lot about, about you know, what I guess, I don't know if we can call it yet the healthiest diet on the planet, but but the diet that most of us believe is is the one that's going to set us up, not just for short-term success uh, in sports and in life, but but also for, for long-term health. Um, you know, your diet certainly fits in there, right, into that category. It's, it's plant-based. It's very, I guess, no oil, uh, high in vegetables, decent amount of fruits. But the thing that really, that, you know, makes your, your diet, the McDougal diet, stand out uh, is the starch. So let's let's start there. I know from what your book says, 70 to 90% of the diet should come from starch. Um, what is it about starch that, that for you, you know, let, makes it makes it worthy of being such a such a huge part of a diet? Well, it always has been. Uh, it, it, somehow people have missed the obvious. And I've been uh, teaching this for 40 years. And I've certainly honed in uh, my communication skills to try and get people to see this more clearly as the years have gone on. But my understanding has always been the same and will remain the same because it happens to be an obvious truth. And that is that all large, successful populations of civilized people have obtained the bulk of their calories from starch. You may have to re-listen to what I had to say, but in summary, essentially everybody who's walked on planet Earth with few exceptions, has obtained most of their energy by eating starches. And starches are, are things like beans and corn, potatoes, sweet potatoes, rice, bread, pasta. Those are starches. And just to be uh, a little more specific in the details to tie in with what I've said so far, if you uh, are a person of history and you know about the Aztecs and Mayans, you know that these are the people of the corn. They obtain most of their calories from corn and a few vegetables and rarely an animal here and there. People from uh, the Andes in South America, they're known as potato eaters. They've been eating potatoes, we know of, for at least 14,000 years. And so the bulk of their calories has come from potatoes. Um, they tell me that the Incas lived on potatoes except for when they went to battle and then they switched to quinoa because it was easier to carry. And if you think of people in the Far East, uh, you usually think about rice in China and Japan. 90% of their food was rice before 1980. In fact, the word for food in China uh, uh, is rice. I mean, they're the same word. And the same thing in Japan is rice is synonymous with the word food. Uh, the Middle East, you know, we turn on the TV every night and we look at uh, con uh, big conflicts going on in Iraq, Iran, Syria. Egypt and this area of the world was known as the breadbasket of the world. So for thousands of years, people lived on wheat and barley. I think I've given you enough examples of the fact that people have obtained the bulk of their calories from starches. Uh, some fruits and vegetables, uh, non-starchy vegetables, when in season they consumed. And once in a while, they killed an animal and ate the animal. But we didn't have refrigeration for most of our time. So... It was a, a difficult thing to do to get animal food. I don't think, I don't know of any populations that were uh, what your listeners might think of as pure vegan, but certainly their animal food intake by and large in huge populations uh, 
was very, very little. You'd go to small uh, primitive populations of people like the Inuit Eskimo, and you could see that they, by, uh, by design of their environment, they were largely animal food eaters. But otherwise, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to pick out small populations or any populations throughout history that have lived uh, with most of their calories coming from animals. It's, uh, it's been starch, starch, and that's, that's what people have to get through their minds. I, I take care of, well, I've probably taken care of myself, probably 10,000 10, patients. I'm a medical doctor and internist. And uh, the thing I, I need to get across to people and still work on today, you know, they start thinking, well, you know, it's not good to eat meat and maybe cheese isn't good for me. And, you know, I should probably be a vegetarian. Maybe I should be a vegan. And then they have to get past the fake foods like the Boca burgers and the fake hot dogs and the fake cheeses. And then they come down to thinking, well, what, I really need to eat all these really nutritious vegetables like kale and broccoli and cauliflower and lettuce and so they hone in on these non-starchy vegetables and they start chewing away and what they find after two or three days is that they're starving to death. It's so hard to get calories. Mm -hmm. And so then what, what happens once that realization comes is uh, some guru or another may tell them, well, you know, you got to get calories. Uh, where are you going to get calories from? Well, what they reach to so often are nuts and seeds, which are about 90% fat. And then they're dealing with another difficult problem is that is eating all this fat, which makes their skin greasy and makes their, their body fat. You know, they, they gain weight. So the other, only other real alternative is to do what human beings have been doing for, I don't know, how long have human beings been around? <laughs> not, not a million years. Humanoids, maybe four million years. What they've been doing for all that time is they've been, they've been gathering calories from uh, high-calorie plant parts, which are starches. They can come as underground storage organs, which would be potatoes and sweet potatoes and bulbs and corms, underground storage organs where plants store their calories for the next season. Or they can be above-ground storage organs such as seeds, which would be grains like rice and corn, or legumes like beans, peas, and lentils. So plants do this. You know, this is what plants do. They take the energy of sunshine and they take carbon dioxide from the air and water from the ground and through the process of photosynthesis they make sugar they make glucose and they use some of that glucose for their growth and activity plants do and then what they do is they store some of that glucose in various plant parts as I just said above ground or below ground storage organs so that after the fall and harsh winter when the sunshine and warmth come back they have energy to sprout and become anew. That's the purpose that's of this uh, of this starch. It's it's for the plants, but human beings have developed special from from primates, from lesser primates, to have the ability to digest starch. Uh, we're unique in the in the primate uh, in the primate classification. If you look at uh, chimpanzees and gorillas. Uh, they have uh, a limited ability to digest starch. Uh, we know this from their their genetic makeup. Uh, they have an, a, a, a DNA that uh, makes uh, amylase. Uh, it's called an amylase gene. And uh, the lesser primates, like gorillas and chimpanzees, they only have about two copies of this gene. 
Well, as evolution took place, as I understand it from my reading, as evolution took place from lesser primates to the humanoid or human primate, we uh, developed the ability to digest starch by making more copies of this amylase gene so that you know some humans have 16 copies as opposed to two for the great ape. And on average, they have about six copies. So what happened when, when the when the primate made this step in evolution is humans could now leave the equator. You see, if you can't digest starch, like a, a great ape, a gorilla, a mm-hmm. chimpanzee, if you can't digest starch, then you're stuck with eating the vegetable foods that are available. And only near the equator do you have non-starchy, perishable vegetables available all year long and fruits available all year long. You just got to stay by the equator. But with our ability to tap into the stored uh, energy sources, underground and above ground storage organs, the uh, human was able to escape from the equator and migrate north and south and uh, essentially populate the entire planet. When fall and winter came, what people would do is they would uh, dig underground and pull up uh, tubers and survive through the winter. Or they would figure out that they could store underground storage organs by drying them. Or they would take uh, seeds like grains and legumes and they would dry them and they would put them away in a dry place for the winter. And and that means their population, their village survived from season to season to season. So, you know, human beings are starch eaters. They're starchivores, they're starchitarians. Every way you look at it, if you want everything to come up right in terms of anatomy, physiology, geography, history, religion, uh, then you have to you have to understand that we are starch eaters, and so when I teach people, I told you I've taken care of about ten thousand people personally as an MD, a board certified internist. When I try and teach people to eat well, you know, I can't just tell them to eat a whole food, plant based diet. What the heck does that mean? Is that like kale and broccoli and and a couple of nectarines? I mean, what is a whole food, plant based diet? It could be uh, all almonds or peanuts. Uh, so it, it doesn't describe to them clearly enough what they're supposed to eat. And that's why I object to the term whole food plant-based because it's not descriptive. Mm-hmm. Vegan means nothing to anybody who's trying to be healthy because you can be a vegan living on nuts and seeds and Boca burgers and olive oil and margarines. And, you know, what does a vegan mean? There's so many fat, sick vegans out there. To, again, it's a kind of a misleading word to say vegan or even vegetarian. So what I have... Tr- what I tell people, what I focus them on in my books and lectures and my personal interactions with them is I focus on the fact that they need to eat about 70 to 90% of their diet is starch. Do they have to weigh it? No. All they have to do is kind of put out the plate and uh, throw on the plate a, a big pile of rice and beans or, or potatoes or sweet potatoes. And they just kind of look at the plate and they say, well, most of the food is starch and maybe I'll add some broccoli and some cauliflower and I'll have uh, an orange or a nectarine uh, after or before dinner. So you got to just kind of look at it that way. And you can figure all this out again if you just look at history. That's the way the people used to eat in uh, Mexico and South America and all around the world. Uh, okay, so so I I mean this this all sounds great. Um, what I what I find myself wondering is I feel like what in so much that I've read before. Um, you know, Dr. Furman, Dr. Gregor, you know, it's a lot, all the talk is about these micronutrient dense fruits and vegetables. 
Um, which, which I guess, you know, if in theory we, we ate that before we developed the ability to, to process and digest starch, um, is it important to strive to get up to nine, 70 to 90% starch or could someone, if someone could feel full on, you know, let's say half of that amount of fruit, is, is that a problem? Uh, if, if, you know, modern distribution allows us to do that away from the equator, uh, or, or would you say it's important to actually, you know, to get up to that level of starch? Well, it is important to get to that level of starch. Um, if you try to do it with fruit, and you can, they're called fruitarians. Mm-hmm. I've, I've met a few in my life. It's just not very satisfying. It's not easy to do, and no population of human beings have ever been fruitarians. I mean, fruit is only available in late summer and fall. Uh, I, you know, it just it just has never happened, and I don't find it working in a practical sense. So, yeah, you need to get your calories from these, uh, these starches, amylose and amylopectin. Uh, as far as micronutrients, uh, we are focused on micronutrients and getting all of the beta carotene and vitamin C and vitamin E, et cetera, that we can possibly get into our mouths. And that came about uh, nearly 100 years ago, that kind of thinking, 100 years ago, well, it's, it, it was a long spectrum of science, but uh, we discovered nutritional deficiency diseases. Like, for example, Barry Barry was discovered, I'm not going to give you a date, but in Asia, after they started refining the rice and they took the, the kernel off the brown rice and made it into white rice, they got thiamine or B1 deficiency and developed Barry Barry. <laughs> when they started processing the corn, they developed a tryptophan deficiency and a disease called pellagra. When people uh, left the shore and went on long sailing voyages, they took fruits and vegetables along. But their primary source of energy was uh, beans and grains. And when they ran out of fruits and vegetables after a few days out to sea, then they didn't have a good source of vitamin C and they developed scurvy. Well, they cured scurvy several hundred years ago by uh, taking limes out on the ships, and that's why they call British sailors limeys. Hmm. So you need, uh, you, if you eat a diet of grains and legumes, you don't get enough vitamin C, and therefore you have to add a source of vitamin C, say a, a piece of orange a day or a, a, a flower out of broccoli a day, to add that vitamin A and C, not just C, but A and C. If you were to base your diet on underground storage organs like sweet potatoes and potatoes, these are actually foods that are loaded with vitamin A and C. In fact, scurvy, uh, the potato is called the anti-scurvy food. Hmm. So uh, anyway, we got focused on these uh, nutrient deficiency diseases. We discovered vitamins. Uh, we discovered vitamin pills. Uh, uh, rickets is another example, lack of vitamin D. And we discovered all these micronutrients, and we cured these deadly diseases with these pills. And what people began to believe, if we can cure scurvy and beriberi and pellagra with pills, we ought to be able to cure cancer, heart disease and obesity and diabetes with pills. And with that that kind of thinking, uh, people got into vitamin supplements. And uh, some of the people you already mentioned are still into vitamin supplement pills. But uh, if you're not a believer in pills, and I certainly am not, uh, I think only only in the extreme should you use pills to treat uh, deficiencies of food-related nutrients. You should instead fix the foods. But because uh, people are so focused on the power of these micronutrients, they've tried to talk 
uh, others into following a diet that is, quote, nutrient-dense, say really high in, you know, a diet that's uh, really plentiful in kale or broccoli or cauliflower. Uh, the first consequence is that's impractical. People can't do it because they starve to death. And then they go on to getting calories from nuts and seeds. And I told you that's a whole other problem. The other thing is there is concern about eating these uh, nutrient-dense foods, uh, such as kale and broccoli. Uh, these are hyperaccumulators. And uh, what they will do is accumulate things like thallium, cesium, and other uh, heavy, dangerous metals uh, into, their, uh, into their plant parts. So they have a problem with toxicity, these, uh, these nutrient-dense foods. Plus, you know, you, you give so much of these nutrients when I don't believe it's intended, uh, I'm concerned that you might get uh, nutritional imbalances. This is theoretical, I'm concerned. And uh, James Watson of Watson and Crick actually wrote a big paper about his concern based on what we just talked about, about how when you give vitamin pills, there are problems that occur. You create nutritional imbalances. He actually took it so far. I mean, this is Watson and Crick of Nobel Prize, James Watson. In his paper that he published about four years ago, he went so far as to say that focusing on these nutrient-dense blueberries and other nutrient-dense foods, you may be creating a similar problem as those who take vitamin supplement pills, and that is creating nutritional imbalances. Hmm. We, we were never intended to get our nutrients uh, by isolated, concentrated pills. We were intended to get our nutrients, say, from a food like a banana. Well, when you eat a banana, you're taking beta-carotene, vitamin C, other phytochemicals. And all of this mixture, properly designed by nature, goes into your ball, into your bloodstream, and goes into your cells. And then it uh, works inside the cells by connecting to various receptors. Now, if you flood your system with a, uh, uh, say, a beta-carotene pill, rather than the beta-carotene in a banana, if you flood your system with a beta-carotene pill, what happens is all that beta-carotene gets into the cells, and it creates nutritional imbalances. And let me tell you how. There are carotenoid receptors inside the cell, and uh, carotenes, and there are about 400 of them, 400 different types of carotenoids, uh, 50 of them that are required by the human being. And they're all different and do different things, except they share one thing in common, is they all attach to the carotenoid receptor in the cell. So if you flood the cell with beta-carotene, what happens is it floods the carotenoid receptors and occupies them, and the other 49 required carotenoids can't work well. So you create these nutritional imbalances, and this is why studies done, say, for example, on beta-carotene, people at high risk of cancer, they dramatically increase the risk of getting lung cancer, dramatically, like 40% greater. And this is why taking folic acid increases the risk of cancer, heart disease, and death. You know, you need to eat folate in plants, foliage. But by taking the pills, you increase your risk of death. Uh, the Cochrane Collaboration, which is a very respected organization, says by taking multivitamins, you know, the one-a-day little pills mom used to stick by your plate in the morning, <laughs> for every 1 million users, there's an extra 9,000 deaths. <laughs> so if you understand this problem of... Uh, of creating nutritional imbalances by focusing on pills. I mean, should we understand why these pills are a disease, cause disease? Well, James Watson of Watson and Crick, he went further and said, when people focus on micronutrient-dense foods, he even mentioned blueberries, that what happens is they uh, 
create nutritional imbalances, and he was worried about it. So my most uh, uh, pointed comment about people who focus on uh, kale and broccoli and cauliflower is uh, there's a good possibility that they could be causing harm. For sure, they're impossible to follow unless you find another source of calories. And as I, as I said, they're hyperaccumulators of dangerous minerals such as uh, thallium and cesium. It's not the right way to go. It doesn't work. And the only thing that works in all of my thinking and all of my experience is you must eat what human beings were designed to eat, which if, if you guess there were, what did somebody guess for me? There are 100 billion people who've lived on planet Earth in all of human history. My guess is 99.9999% of them lived on a diet with, where the bulk of the calories came from starch. Hmm. And never did they live on a diet of kale. Never did they live on a diet of broccoli. Okay, so for the record, we should mention that you do recommend take, taking B12 as a supplement, correct? I do. Okay. And I, don't know whether, I don't know whether you want to get into that. No, I don't think it, we need to. I just wanted people to realize that you know there yeah. was a supplement you recommended, and it was that one, just so that people don't go off and... If you're trying to live on grains and legumes alone, you need to add a uh, vitamin C source, such as broccoli or oranges. Sure. But you can live on potatoes and water alone, or sweet potatoes and water alone, and the exception that you just mentioned is B12. Yep. Okay, so speaking, I guess, of, of you know diets that historically we ate, uh, or, or in this case, supposedly ate, not necessarily yours, but the, the, the paleo argument, right? We all hear paleo and every, everyone who eats a plant-based diet rolls their eyes because, you know, we're all tired of the paleo talk. But, uh, I, I hear so often from them, the, the objection, which I think is, I think it's a really, I think people who are kind of new to plant-based diets are particularly susceptible. They, they just hear about inflammation from grains and beans and, it's kind of easy to fall prey to because it's you know it just seems like something that you can't really observe very well from the outside. Um, what what do you think about that argument when people say, well, the grains and beans that you're eating with these plant based diets, particularly a, a starch heavy one, uh, cause too much inflammation and we're you know we're not meant to eat them. Basically, citing the same historical things but saying that that these are things we shouldn't eat. Well, they are either ignorant <laughs> or they lie because. It's plain and simple what isn't true what they say. If you want to see a review of the things that cause inflammation, you can go to my January 2014 newsletter where I wrote a newsletter about grain, brain, and wheat belly and all their inflammation theories. Uh, animal foods are inflammatory. Plant foods, grains, bread, etc. are not. There is the ignorance or the uh, misleading part of it, uh, the story. It starts from the fact that the research says the opposite of what they say it says. Now, as far as paleo diets, uh, I think what I recommend is a paleo diet, and there's a, a fragment of the paleo community that's moving very strongly in my direction, because paleo people ate like I just told you they ate. Uh, their diet was a diet primarily of starch uh, with a few animals along the way. So uh, what Lauren Cordain did, Lauren Cordain is the head of the paleo Mm -hmm. movement. He uh, put together his book. And I do have to mention, you should take the trouble to look at Carl Lauren Cordain. He physically looks very unhealthy and overweight. So if that's what his diet does to people, you should just run away. Uh, so he teaches a diet where 55% of the food comes from animals, even endangered animals. Uh, that's what he teaches. And he also says in his book that if people really followed the diet that he recommended, that uh, nine out of ten people would have to die 
because planet Earth couldn't support all the numbers, uh, couldn't support as food source uh, the 7 billion people that live on this planet. It just could be impossible to do. So pick nine of your 10 friends and have them kill themselves so that uh, the paleo people can have their way. Uh, the theorists, I have to say, there are some good things about the paleo movement. They try and get people away from refined food, which is always good. And I think the major thing that they've done is tried to get them away from dairy. Dairy foods are very toxic. But then turn around and telling people that they should eat 55% of their diet as animals. And they do mention things like rattlesnakes and, you know, uh, really some very rare animals. And they even give you stores in the book where you can buy these, these, uh, these kind of paleo kind of animals. But they say if you can't eat the real paleo animals, then you could get some clean cow and pig and, you know, kind of do the best you can on the paleo diet. It's a bunch of nonsense. And unfortunately, uh, people can go for the paleo diet pretty easy because it can mean anything they want it to mean, except they can't eat dairy. They can eat all the cows and pigs and chickens and fishes they can stuff in their mouth. So it's a, it's an easy sell. So, but if they look, you know, if their reasoning is kind of the same, what, what you gave for the first 10 minutes here is let's look back at what our ancestors ate. How do they arrive at such a different conclusion? Like, how, like if, you know, how do, how do they say we, we never ate grains and beans if, if you're saying clearly we did? They don't read, they don't read the science. That's it. They don't read the proceedings of the National Academy of Science. They don't read Science Magazine. Uh, they don't read the science. Now, there was a, a publication done about, oh, I, I'm only guessing, 80 years ago. It was an extremely flawed publication. And uh, the people who believe in the science of paleo, they, they use that publication that was uh, done many years ago. I'd have to look it up for you, but uh, you know, I do have it. And uh, I do have the... The, the serious criticism that was done on this publication in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. But that was that, that uh, piece was put together many, many, many years ago. And since then, I could show you, I can show you 30 very more studies that are done by archaeologists that have carefully looked at what people have eaten. I can show you studies where 105,000 years ago in Mozambique, people were living on starch. I can show you uh, studies of Neanderthals from 44,000 years ago, a starch-based diet. I mean, this is the highest class of all science. I can show you a paper uh, where Czechs and Russians and Italians, various populations were living on cooked starch 30,000 years ago. So uh, the paleo people who say that uh, our diet was a hunter-gatherer diet with an emphasis on hunting, they're wrong, and they're also, if I could mention, involved in sexism. Sexism. What you're doing is this. When you talk about hunter-gatherers, you emphasize the importance of hunting, you're buying into sexism. Uh, think about it for a minute. Think about hunter-gatherer communities. As I mentioned, I don't think there are any vegan societies. Mm -hmm. But you got food by hunting or gathering. Who did the gathering? I, I don't know. I, I would imagine the women, but I don't know. It was the grandparents and the, and the women and the children. They did the gathering, right? Okay. Who did the honey? The story says men. <laughs> oh, there you go. So these men, they get their bows and arrows out, and they go tramping through the forest or the jungle, and they kill something, they try and get it back before it rots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they sit around the campfire, and they tell these glorious stories, and the glory gets passed on 
because they're men. And the real truth as to who's providing the food for the village doesn't come out because these are women, children, grandparents. Hmm. Right. That's hunter-gatherer. It's something, by the way, that goes on today. If you're watching the politics, you can see some of it going on. You know, this is not a new trait of human beings, sexism isn't. <laughs> right, right. Interesting. And, and I mean, it does certainly, still, there's there's the stigma, I think, and we think of paleo as the masculine diet, and we think of plant-based as, as a feminine one, uh, which, of course, we all hope that, <laughs> that disappears. Let me tell you why that should disappear today is if you look at the winners of medium and long distance running events mm -hmm. since 1968, 40% of them have been from Kenya and 80% 80, 80 of their diet is corn. Or you could take a trip back 2000 years ago and look at the gladiators. The gladiators, uh, there's an excavation of 60 bodies and they're all found to be male and they had uh, tridents and shields and swords buried with them. They had trident holes in their skulls and they quickly concluded that these were gladiators. And then they analyzed their bones to tell what their long-term diet was, and their long-term diet was declared to be vegan, hmm. starch. And it fits in with the historical accounts of gladiators. Gladiators, if you read about them, have been known as the barley men because their diet was exclusively barley and beans. They were vegan. And that's compared to skeletons of people of the same era that were not gladiators. So if the gladiators eat a vegan barley and bean diet, then those are the strongest, toughest, meanest, most enduring men that have ever participated in sport on this planet. Why would they eat that diet? Because you only get to go to the Coliseum once if you lose. <laughs> right. And they didn't want to lose, so introducing meat or trying to live on kale and broccoli, they'd have, they'd have had a trident head through their hole in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> they would have a trident hole in their head in the first 10 minutes. Well, that, that actually makes for a, a good time to shift to uh, something just a little bit more, more practical where I want to wrap up in our last few minutes. Okay, before I get on to the next question, let's pause for a minute to thank our sponsor. We'd like to thank this week's sponsor of No Meat Athlete Radio, Rebel, and their delicious super herb elixirs and proteins. Rebel's elixirs and protein drinks are made with coconut milk and super herbs to de-stress and re-energize your body and mind. With the exception of just two that use honey as a sweetener, the rest are completely plant-based, certified organic, non-GMO, and soy-free. Matt, I don't know about you, but since we first had the chance to try out one of Rebel's elixirs, I've started noticing them around town. Most of the local health food stores, even here in Black Mountain, actually carry them, so I've had the chance to try out a few other flavors. Right now, I am totally digging the maca cold brew, which is a mixture of coffee, coconut milk, and it's packed full of their signature maca extract. If you want to find Rebel in a store near you, head over to rebel.co, that's R-E-B-B-L dot C-O, and click the where to buy button in the top panel to find elixirs in a store near you. Doug Rebel has once again been gracious enough to give away a case of their Rebel Elixirs to one lucky No Meat Athlete Radio listener. All you have to do is head over to the show notes of today's show at nomeatathlete.com slash radio 165 and leave us a comment about the show. We'll choose one U.S.-based winner to receive a free case of these delicious elixirs before Thursday, October 27th. Should there be, you know, there's a, there's a paleo diet and a paleo diet for athletes, separate books, because the, the original paleo diet doesn't really suit athletes very well. 
Uh, sh- should there be a for athletes version of your plan? I know in your book you have some certain foods that you say like these these would be more for athletic people, whereas these wouldn't. Well, uh, the diet still needs to be starch based. Mm-hmm. And let's see, what would I say? No, what I, th- I think I, what I think I focused on were two categories in the book: the healthiest diet on the planet. Uh, one is people who are very athletic. In other words, uh, burn a lot of calories. Say I burn two thousand calories a day. Say they burn three thousand or five thousand. An easy way to get those extra calories is dried fruit. Uh, all the starches are about the same in the amount of calories they're going to give you. Or if you really need more calories, you can get into nuts and seeds. But they're not great energy food because they're oils, and uh, the body runs best on sugar uh, for, for athletic, athletic events. Uh, you you know, carbohydrate, carbohydrate loading, you all, I'm sure everybody knows sure. that carbohydrate is, is the fuel for winners. Yeah. So I think, though, as athletes, we we think of starches as as the the slower, the less immediately available carbohydrate compared to something like dried fruit or fruit juice. Um, I mean, is 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 there ever an instance where you'd say, like, as an athlete, go for the white version of the flour or the rice because that's going to be more readily available to you as an athlete, or do you think it's it's the the whole food versions all the way? Uh, that 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 could be a point of view taken. It's not one that I've ever taken, but it does make some sense. Uh, what, say, long-distance marathon and triathlon runners try and do is they try and pick high glycemic index foods so that if they can restore their glycogen stores uh, between events or, you know, they, so they purposely pick things like potatoes, which we'd say is, you know, white sugar. Well, it, it does have a higher glycemic index. Uh, the glycemic index of white and brown rice, I think, is about the same. But that would, you know, certainly you could make that argument, and I would not... Uh, uh, I would not push against it. So, um, yeah, if you if you wanted to eat white rice instead of brown, it would work for you. But but in general, uh, I mean, not around athletic events, but just in general day to day, you're you're definitely more on on the side of the the whole food form, the brown rice or the whole wheat flour. Yeah, we serve brown rice and, and more um, more fiber dense foods. Right. But, but I get into a, see, I, I get into a situation where I have to help people, a lot of people, hopefully. You know, hundreds of thousands of people, and I say I have patients I have to take care of, and they get in this situation where they go out for with their friends to a restaurant, and they don't know where to eat. Well, you can always go to a Chinese or a Thai or Vietnamese restaurant, and you walk in there and you go, "Oh, there's just white rice, a Kenny white rice." Well, you know, the other the other the other uh, choice is fried pork. <laughs> right. So, uh, two two billion Asians in the twentieth century lived on a diet that was 90% white rice, and they didn't do well. Think about it for a minute. We almost lost World War II to white rice eaters, and we did lose the Vietnam conflict to white rice eaters. And are you, I mean, are you using that as evidence that, you know, for athletic prowess? Is that what you mean? Well, it seemed to work for them. Yeah, okay. I mean... <laughs> Who knows? I mean, I, I honestly don't know that much about let, 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 Just to, to roll it over into the context, mm-hmm. uh, I do think eating whole grain products are better. But what if you're out at a uh, at the uh, Honolulu Marathon and you've got several thousand runners out there and they go out to dinner, uh, how often are they going to have uh, uh, brown rice available? Yeah, totally. And I, I actually really appreciate that point of view because I think I think it's, there's it's really easy to get totally idealistic and, and suddenly feel like you can't eat anything. Um, yep. and, and so as you mentioned, you want to help hundreds of thousands of people 
And there are a lot of people for whom that's going to be the point at which they, they say, this is too much. I can't eat my white pasta and my white rice anymore, so I'm just not going to do any of this. And, and that's, you know, I think we, we, we lose a lot of people by, by trying to be too perfect in our diets. So I think that's a, a really good, good point of view. Um, Let me ask another thing. Uh, just that is important. I, you know, I'm a medical doctor. I used to work in Hawaii. I took care of a lot of Filipino, Chinese, Japanese people. Uh, eating white rice and brown rice has a social bias that's very serious to consider. Is the Asian considers people who eat brown rice as lowly people, dirty people, peasant people, clean, refined, rich people eat white rice. And so if you suggest to Asians of this kind of a background that you want them to eat brown rice, they would say they would rather die than make that social transgression. So uh, there's other things that go into it besides availability. There's the way people culturally feel about the rice. They're not, they're, you're not going to get some people, billions of people, to eat brown rice just from that point of view that they know they know they're 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 lowering their social class. Mm-hmm. Interesting, really interesting. Uh, okay, my last question is one I've really only started to hear this recently, uh, but the idea that that flour, even even completely whole wheat flour. Uh, you know, potentially might be a bad thing or not an ideal thing, uh, you know, because it's ground so fine that suddenly it's it's way more available and our body takes in way too much of, of you know, the nutrition, I guess it easily gets overnourished for perhaps from this stuff rather than uh, than having to work to get it. Um, do, you, do you, Is there anything to that? I mean, should we be thinking that flour is bad in all forms? Well, I, there is some truth to what you say and some practicality too. In a, a version of the diet that I wrote about 24 years ago called uh, the Maximum Weight Loss Program, for people to lose weight faster, uh, we asked them not to eat flour. Okay. But it, I don't know that it really made that much difference to not eat flour. Maybe, maybe, because there are people like for, for myself, I can come home from a half a day of windsurfing and I can consume a loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but certainly doesn't so, help with compliance. Yeah, right? <laughs> no. so it doesn't make weight loss easier. But I do want to point out that uh, bread and pasta have been traditional foods for thousands of years. I mean, bread is the staff of life. And up until recently, there were no fat Italians. Um, you know, people were quite thin all over all over Europe. But now what's happened is uh, Greece has become the... Uh, the country with the highest rate of childhood obesity, childhood obesity in the world, and Italy is number two because of all the oil and the meat and so on that's been introduced. It's not because of the pasta. Mm-hmm. So people have done well. I mean, you go back and you read your stories of uh, the Roman and Greek conflicts and the Trojan Wars, and no doubt you will find they lived on starch-based diets. I don't think there were enough goats and pigs and and cows around to uh, to power armies of hundreds of thousands of people. Don't think so. Interesting. Well, Dr. Matuko, I really appreciate this. This has been uh, a really different perspective from, from I don't want to say what I expected because I knew you were the starch guy, but uh, I had always really kind of put you up there with, you know, with the, the five to eight plant-based doctors and kind of figured they're all sort of teaching the same message. But this certainly is a unique one, uh, and, and I, I've appreciated it. It's interesting and and. As, I, as I'm sure a huge part of the reason or one of the benefits, I guess, of having such a high starch diet is it does certainly seem like an appealing one. It certainly seems like one that is easy to stick to, uh, letting you eat a lot of foods that, that, you know, many people have considered off limits perhaps for a long time. 
So thank you. Oh, go, go ahead. Anything else? Any any final I, things to say? I want to say just a couple more words because we get a chance to hammer hammer this starch starch thing down. <laughs> people love starch. Uh, you ask people what their favorite food is, and they'll say potatoes or or rice or pasta. Well, there's a reason for that. We are uh, anatomically designed to love starch. Uh, in the month of um, September 2016, I believe. Uh, Oregon Health or, or Oregon University, the University of Oregon, they came out with a paper identifying a starch taste bud on the tongue. And they had to block the sweet tasting taste buds in order to identify the starch base bud, which they found to be as powerful as the sweet tasting taste bud. So that people just craved bread, craved, you know, potatoes and rice. And those interested in starch should look about look up and understand the seventh taste bud. We have two others we're attracted to, and that's sweet and salt. The other thing is the economic issue that really is troubling for me to see happen, and that is when people switch away from a starch-based diet to a, you know, the modern American diet. It's a serious economic burden. Uh, Mary and I were in Costco a couple weeks ago, and there was this Latino family, three fat little children, and overweight mom and dad. They were going through the cashier line and. Get partway through the cashier line, and mom says, stop. I don't have any more money. And I said to Mary, you know, I'm going to go over there and tell them put all their food back, and I'm going to take them back through the aisles of Costco and show them the, the mistakes they made. I'm going to take them over to the aisle where the beans are so they see they can buy 25 pounds of beans for $14. I'm going to take them over to the white potatoes where they can get 20 pounds of potatoes for $9. I'm going to take them over to the rice section where they can get 50 pounds of rice for $29. And then they're going to walk back up to that counter and they're going to go through the cashier line and they're going to spend half of that $300 they had for food for the family. And mom and dad, the kids are going to end up being stronger and healthier. They're going to do better at their soccer matches. Dad's not going to die of a heart attack. Mom's not going to get colon cancer. Yeah, it's just more than money. It's social. Certainly, I mean that's that's a huge uh, a huge criticism of the diet or, or objection or concern, if you will, that people are, are worried that eating this way, the way that we talk about all the time, uh, is an expensive one. And you know, I often have to say, like, yeah, to eat lots of fresh fruits and vegetables certainly is expensive. So uh, this is that's a great point. That that starches, you know, beans, potatoes, rice, flowers, they they're much cheaper for sure. Um, so that that's yet another interesting benefit. And we could also talk about if we're going to save planet Earth. You're not going to save planet Earth by switching to a diet of kale and broccoli. You can't get enough calories. You couldn't grow enough food. The only way you can do it is to switch to a starch-based diet. In 2008, the World Health Organization declared the year 2008 the International Year of the Potato. With the idea that the potato had saved civilizations for thousands of years, and it may be the food that saves the human race in the very, very near future. You just you have to you have to have a food that is extremely productive, uh, easy to grow, produces a tremendous amount of calories, and potatoes are ideal. You can grow potatoes in dry environments, wet environments, low altitudes, high altitudes, uh, nutrient deficient uh, environment uh, soils. I mean, it's an amazing food as far as its productivity is. So we can add starch into the step that is required to save us from burning in hell. 
you see there is something called global warming and climate change. If you don't believe, turn off the radio. Uh, if you do believe, then you start looking for solutions and you quickly come to the realization that half of the greenhouse gases or more are caused by eating livestock. And uh, there is a concern in every one of our ecosystems, destroying oceans and rivers and forests and uh, go on and on. The livestock injury is. And so if we're going to give ourselves a chance to keep this planet alive for us to inhabit, a crucial step we must make right now is to get people to understand that they need to change their calorie intake from animals to starches. You can't change it to kale. You can't change it to broccoli or cauliflower. It would impractical. It's so impractical, it won't happen. But they could change their diets. You know, if uh, President Modi of India got up and Vladimir Putin of Russia got up and Barack Obama, Barack Obama stood up and, and they all said, hey, citizens of planet Earth, if you switch to a starch-based diet, we can drop greenhouse gases at least in half and we can get ourselves on a road to reconstruction where we can get new modes of energy and transportation and we can save this beautiful space. But unless we make that move from the animal foods and even the non-starchy vegetables, but I've laid on that enough, to starch as the bulk of the calories of the human beings, it's game over. Well, I mean, certainly, it, I think, you know, the reaction, of course, would be, but starchy foods are going to make me fat. Um, but, but you know, as, as you've talked about for this entire time, and, and I've seen evidence myself, I mean, it, yes, potatoes, if eaten in combination with lots of fats, maybe they do contribute. But when it's just potatoes and lots of starches and not a lot of fat, uh, you know, weight loss is, is very often the result, as, as I'm sure you would agree, right? Always, always. Uh, there have ne- if you look at populations of people, like we'll give China as an example, Before 1980, there were no fat Chinese and there was no type 2 diabetes. Over the last 35 years, the Chinese have become very wealthy. They are now consuming much less rice, twice the animal, twice the oil intake, and they're some of the fattest, sickest people on the planet. It's right there in front of your eyes. All you have to do is look. I mean, I'm old enough. I'm uh, nearly 70 years old. I was involved peripherally in the Vietnam conflict. Uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember what the world used to be like in starch-eating areas of the world. I went to Peru where there potato eaters, and the only fat people I saw were in the restaurants. They were serving serving uh, visitors, and the chefs and the and the waiters, they were fat. Uh, besides, that, there were no fat people in Peru. You know, and uh, we've all seen images of China and the Philippines and Thailand and once there were no fat people, there was no type 2 diabetes, there was no breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, none of these problems existed until the introduction of the rich Western diet, which is loaded with, I want you to think about two categories of food poisoning now, and then we'll end. It's loaded with two categories of food poison, animal foods and vegetable oils. And now we have a massive sickness all over the planet from overnutrition by eating these foods and not eating the starch that is so satisfying, so tasty, uh, just so right in every single way. And that's why I'm happy to be known as the guy who recommends starch. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely are. And uh, I think that's, I think that's a, as I said, a unique thing. And I'm, I'm glad to have done this interview because... I, I really do like to think of myself as one who's open-minded uh, about all different kinds of diets, and this is one that I have 
really kind of neglected learning about. So I'm really looking forward to reading every page of your book, The Healthiest Diet on the Planet. Uh, is it out now? Is it is it already in stores? No, it's out. It's it's a it's a beautiful, powerful book. I have to say. All right. I think that those of you who are really interested in my best explanation of the uh, of the principles would be a book that I wrote in 2011 called The Start Solution. Uh, to most people, I found want both books because they're so different. Uh, if you want it easy, get the new book, The Healthiest Diet on the Planet. It's a color picture book. You have one there, don't you? I do. Yeah, I have a copy. I mean, just run, run through the pages. Isn't it beautiful? Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's a nice, the, the red light, green light section. I appreciate that. I, I really do like the easy stuff. <laughs> it's an amazing book, but if you want to get into the you know the story and the science and so on, the start solutions, are a good place to go, too. But the healthiest diet on the planet will make you happy because it's a really painless, powerful introduction to what I believe. Great. Well, I really appreciate it. Appreciate the work you're doing. Is there anywhere to find you online? You have a website, correct? I have a website. It's, a, I think, one of the best websites on the entire Internet. It's called uh, drmcdougall.com, and that's spelled D-R-M-C-D-O-U-G-A-L-L.com. You can just look up John McDougall and Diet, and I'm sure I'll appear right up there at the top. And the website is unique in the sense that basically everything is free. All the information is free. We have about 500 free recipes. We have a 12-day program. All the things I write about uh, colon cancer screening and uh, breast cancer and diabetes and food and protein and so on are all free. All the information is free there. So I'd encourage you not to spend a penny and uh, go to that uh, website and look what we've offered to people. We've been doing this for about 15 years and get started there. You'll find the color picture book free on that website and you'll find it in 24 different languages which is a key part of this book, The Healthiest Diet on the Planet. So you can take a look there before you buy the book. But you'll want the book because when friends and relatives come over, you'll see when I say, hey, look at this, look at this. You can, you can learn all about this in 10 minutes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna, it is doing the job that I hope, and it will continue to be a big changer for people. Good. All right. And as you said, lots of pictures, lots of recipes, so very easy uh, thing to, to leap through and, and dive into. So, Dr. McDougall, thank you very much for the work that you do and for taking the time to join us on No Meat Athlete Radio. I look forward to, to learning more from you and hopefully meeting you in person someday. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.